Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 56 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of 7 Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Alan English. Alan English is the founder and non-executive chairman of ASX-listed and B Corp-accredited Silver Chef Limited. Founded in 1986, Silverchef's core business is equipment funding for small to medium-sized businesses across a range of sectors, operating in three countries and employing 450 staff. In 2010, he created the English Family Foundation to support local and overseas social entrepreneurs tackling some of the more challenging issues facing our society. Alan currently serves as a council member of Philanthropy Australia and on the advisory board of QUT's the Australian Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies. He is a former recipient of the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award and in 2012, Alan was recognised by Queensland Community Foundation as Philanthropist of the Year and in 2014, he received Philanthropy Australia's inaugural Philanthropy Leader Award. In 2017, Alan was included in the Australian Financial Review's list of 21 true leaders who are changing Australia for the better. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Alan's broad insights into social entrepreneurship and philanthropy. We'll get Alan's thoughts and perspective on social enterprise opportunities, and we'll hear what Alan believes can be done to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. Alan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. So to kick things off, Alan, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to work as an entrepreneur and further down the line as a philanthropist? <laughs> okay, so uh, obviously it's a long history, which I won't take uh, all of the steps that were in between. But starting off, I, um, I suppose I've, uh, in my working life, I've had two years where I've worked for someone else and the rest of the time I've been an entrepreneur. My early stage in the hospitality industry was bringing in pizza ovens into Australia for the home delivery pizza industry way back in 1986. I found that people struggled to find the capital to pay for these $27,000 pizza ovens Mm. I was selling. And particularly a lot of people were young trying to get into the industry and uh, capital was a a real problem. So I developed a rent-try-buy model where I'd buy the equipment, put it into the cafe or restaurant that pays a weekly rent for the use of it. And once it gets successful, they could get a 75% rebate if they decided to purchase it. But if it didn't work out, at the end of 12 months, you could just hand it back and walk away. So we removed all the traditional banking structures of saying you've got to have a house. Yep. And it's got to be a big house before we'll lend your money. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, um, you know, they referred other customers to us and the business grew. Fantastic. So I suppose you've seen the business organically grow over this time? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I built a large sales business where I was taking the profit from the equipment sales business to fund the rental business in the early days. And I sold that... Um, business off in 1995 and uh, eventually got to the stage where we ran out of capital from the use of the the sale of those uh, assets and uh, eventually 
uh, got to listing on the stock exchange in 2005. But that was a great milestone. It was a milestone, it certainly was. When you're in the equipment rental business, it means the faster you grow, the more capital you need. And um, getting access to capital from banks was pretty tough because mm. I had a 12-month contract where I didn't recover my capital in that 12 months. So the banks were saying, well, how can I fund you when you don't even recover your capital? Mm. So I was getting like 30 cents in the dollar uh, of debt and 70 cents of my own money. So the faster it grew, the quicker I went through my capital, as you yeah. can imagine. Um, eventually got to the point where uh, needing more capital got to the stage of uh, raising enough private uh, capital through a convertible note issue um, and, and got to the stage of listing and that then gave us access to the capital markets to keep on growing it. Fantastic. A lot of the entrepreneurs that you support are really purpose-driven entrepreneurs. So talking about purpose, how did you find your purpose and how did that change the way that you live and do business? It was really interesting. It was about uh, the year 2000. I got to the stage where uh, the capital that I got from the sale of the equipment business would run out and um, I was now trying to get capital. I worked really hard trying to get access to capital to back it and I just couldn't get it across the line. And I asked myself a really important question, which was, you know, why are you trying to make more money? Mm -hmm. um, at that stage in my life, I'd, uh, you know, it was a fabulous business. I had six staff members. I was making 50 grand a month. You know, it was, it was a wonderful business. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I lived in the same house I lived in for 25 years. I wasn't into big boats or cars. And so the question was, well, why are you trying to make more money? Mm -hmm. And I really couldn't come up with the answer of what that was. I sort of saw businesses have been a bit like a game of tennis, you know, it's all about practicing your strokes. Every now and then you check the scoreboard to see how you're going, but it's yeah. a game that's important. Um, so from there it was a case of, well, if you don't know the answer, then you better see if you can find out. So my manager at the time, I left him and said, listen, you've got 50 grand a month to reinvest, not a penny more. Um, so we just reinvested the profits. And then I went off um, uh, volunteering and uh, fundraising for, for an organization. I met up with a a microfinance organization called Opportunity International, mm -hmm. which I, I made a, a $10,000 donation, which in those days was a fortune. Um, wow. And uh, that got me into microfinance of funding women, uh, entrepreneurs in developing countries, the poorest of the poor, mm -hmm. a chance to start their own small business. And that was so aligned to what I was trying to do with Silvership because I was all about helping young people achieve their dreams. And here was a way of doing it at a much, much bigger scale. Yeah, yeah. So I volunteered with them and then uh, one day a week become two, become five and I was full time doing what, doing that. And eventually I funded a project in East Timor which was, um, East Timor had just gone through independence and uh, it was looking like, uh, the way of preventing slums in the developing world is you create economic activity in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. So this was a microfinance program to prevent future slums in the city. And it was a fabulous project, put it together with some assistance and some mates, and um, came back and I got a report from uh, my charity partner saying that one project to move 40,000 people out of poverty. So it was one of those jaw-dropping moments of saying, wow, that's a football stadium full of people. And uh, they just don't know I exist, you know, how cool is that? You know, there's no ego attached to yeah. this, it's pure. Then it became, wow, if you could do that every year, wouldn't that be cool? And then one year, then I said, well, okay, if I could do that every year, well, that could be a reason to go back to work and overcome your capital issues if you could do a project like that every year. Mm. And that became the key turning point for me. And suddenly the worldview totally changed and I went back to work with a new invigorated passion, shall we say. Mm. And within about six months or so, raised $13.5 million in a note issue to get debt to raise it up to the next stage. And 
went 180 mile an hour just going flat out to drive the business and uh, it certainly put the framework together for me as a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Yeah, I bet it did. It sounds incredibly rewarding. Yeah, no, it was great. Fantastic. So working with these different social entrepreneurs, and many of them, both in the developing world and uh, in the Western world, what do you believe are the most important attributes then of a social entrepreneur? Well, a social entrepreneur, I think the, the main thing is getting really clear about what your, your intentions are. But the most common problem that we see is uh, when it comes to funding, uh, to be able to get clear on what are the right type of debt and funding that's needed at that time. Because it's not only through gifts and support and financial friends and crowdfunding and all those sorts of stuff, but taking a longer term picture mm. about what are the key elements of funding and what's the right timing to take on that uh, amount of debt. People very often go chasing the dollars rather than thinking strategically about when to play. Mm. Um, the other thing I think is developing you know, deep relationships with your supporters, you know, making sure that um, you uh, build strong relationships so that you've got people who deeply understand what your purpose is, what you're mm. trying to achieve and want to work alongside you because like anybody knows who's an entrepreneur, there's, there's hills and valleys, there's times when you're on top of the world looking wonderful and all of a sudden there's chasm below you, you know? yes, and in those deep dark times you need to be have, have strong support, so mm. that's part of the importance. Resilience, very important to be able to, uh, how quickly you can stand back up again when you've been knocked down, I think that's as part of the challenges of being an entrepreneur is failure, yep. recognising failure early mm. and, uh, and calling it yep. and prototyping a new way of, of solution of thinking of going forward, yep. these are all important attributes for it. Fantastic, I think there's some great tips there. So as the key supporter of the IDOS Social Procurement Challenge. The question has been put to the Australian public of how social enterprises in Australia can be made more capable and able to achieve higher impact. And the winners are gonna be announced next week, mm -hmm. which is pretty exciting. And I suppose the question is, through your eyes, how do you see this answer to the question? Well, perhaps best is to give you a framing of why the project was put together. Um, I was part of the Australian contingent that went to Chicago in July this year to attend the Global Steering Group's uh, Conference for Impact Investment. This was set up by David Cameron, the British Prime Minister for the G8 countries, yes. to establish their own investment, uh, impact investment advisory boards in those countries mm. to grow the impact investment movement. There's now 27 countries involved and uh, the amount of capital that's been allocated to this uh, impact investment pool is extraordinary. Mm. So there's $150 billion that is currently invested in impact investment in the world. They are forecasting it will be $300 billion by the year 2020. So there's hedge funds, there's all sorts of players that are coming into it. There's significant changes happening around the globe about the world of impact investment and, and having capital made for, available for social mm. good. For example, the French government passed a law last year to, uh, that any company that employed 50 people or more must offer those employees the opportunity to invest in a solidarity fund. Mm. What a solidarity fund is, is sometimes called the 90-10 rule, which is 90% of the capital gets invested in traditional stocks and shares, but 10% has got to be invested in impact investment or mm. social entrepreneurship, that yeah. purpose-driven leadership model. Now they got one million people signed up in that first year. So it just shows that there's such an interest in mm. the space. Yep. So from a strategic perspective, I'm looking at it with my hat as the, uh, on the board of Philanthropy Australia saying, well, these, the community sector and the social entrepreneur sector in Australia 
really needs to be able to have capital. So if I can see this large wave of capital becoming available, yeah. the key measurement criteria they have, of course, is to get a financial return, but also strong measurable impact validated by a third party. So to be able to grow the sector in Australia to take advantage of this wave of capital that will be coming available over the next few years, we need to scale up. So what does that look like? Um, and this is where the development of the idea of getting the IDOS uh, social procurement package up to be able to say, let's get fresh ideas mm. coming into the marketplace that can look at how can we scale the sector to take advantage of this uh, potential capital pool coming down the track. So that was the framing for it. It's a fantastic opportunity. Mm. I think it would be really good. I think the, uh, I, obviously I can't talk about uh, the finalists to who are in it so far. It is up on the website for people to go and have a look at. Um, but it's really exciting to see some of those new ideas that are groundbreaking, that are, yes. that are doing the things that have not been done before. Mm. And uh, as an entrepreneur, obviously, I'm excited about uh, developing up some new big change-making ideas that yes. are going to bring about a, a movement to take it to its next stage. Yeah, absolutely. So getting finance mm -hmm. as a social entrepreneur, this is something you're not a stranger to. Yeah. What would be your top three recommendations, Alan, that you'd make to help other change makers on their journey? I think getting finance is, is always going to be a challenge in the social enterprise space. Looking, getting alignment with uh, people who can see and understand your vision and your purpose about what you're trying to do. Understand the options that are available to you. So people often think about finance as being uh, a straight grant or a gift or the friends and rally stage. We tend to go through the, the early stage development of friends and rallies, then we do the crowdfunding and then we get to the other side of that and say, well, what's next? Mm. You know, yeah. And that's really is a challenge. There is a number of different ways that you can approach that. For example, if you are a, a DGR, in other words, a registered charity, you, you can approach foundations to provide debt by way of a security to for a bank overdraft. Mm -hmm. In other words, that they provide the asset security to the bank yep. that you can then use the bank's funding to be able to uh, to grow the enterprise through debt. Yep. Mixture of debt and and capital is, is a good blend. Um, so getting that right, I think one of the fundamental things I see of failure early in the piece is that social entrepreneurs don't pay themselves or pay themselves very poorly. And what they don't tend to see so clearly is they think that it's a badge of honour that they really are trying to do the right thing by their supporters who are helping them. Mm. But what they're really doing is they're shifting the load of responsibility onto their partner to supplement their passion. Mm. Now, that's all well and good in the early stages, but the number of times that it leads to high stress within the, the family home, that, yeah. that then leads to it's either the enterprise or me. Yeah. And you know, clearly, they will choose their partner and the enterprise fails. Absolutely. And that's because they haven't structured their business well to make sure that they've got a livable wage yep. that they'll be paying to sustain themselves mm -hmm. going forward. So getting those fundamental structures right, that uh, means that you've got a, a budget that's got the proper cost allocated to it, yep. and that you've been fair income and understanding what it's going to take to be able to make your enterprise work. Mm, some really good advice there. So how do you see the social enterprise sector then transforming as we move into the future? And how do you think we, as the social enterprise sector, may better collaborate together to work towards a common goal? Mm. I think the collaboration aspect is an important part. Um, mm. I think that I'm seeing it from the foundation space that there is a greater degree of collaboration and sharing knowledge and information from yeah. philanthropists now than ever before. Yeah. We're sharing opportunities that we 
we are, might be the partial funder, there's a greater need for capital and that we'll rope in friends and colleagues to say, here's an opportunity, let's see if we can support each other. And yeah. it's happening a lot more. So the same goes within the social enterprise sector is that ensure that you've got a unique point of difference. Don't go and copycat something else yeah. that's already available out mm -hmm. there. It's just increasing strain, pressures and, and, yeah. and overhead structures. And if there is something that's got alignment, collaborate. Mm -hmm. you know, be, be, have a shared administration cost mm -hmm. you know, rather than duplicating those yeah. things. Is there joint marketing activities we can do together? What's a natural product alignment? You know, if you've got yeah. vertical integration going on in your economic development, what stages are next that you can align with that you can do cross-sharing of income? You know, those sorts of models of working in the sense of collaboration is going to be very important. Yeah. We've also got to be doing a lot more about educating our consumers to be able to make choices because at the end of the day, it's the power of the purchasing dollar that's going to drive the social enterprise sector. And so increasing the awareness of the social enterprise and products that are available, referring friends and colleagues, getting that conversation piece going around the barbecue yep. about those sorts of purchasing decisions will obviously increase and grow the sector. I think finding a marketplace, I mean, social traders have done some good work here about establishing a marketplace for social entrepreneurs who wish to participate in social procurement. Mm. Um, so more and more governments are now starting to look at how can we use social procurement as a way of aiding the social enterprise through you know, employing people with long-term unemployment and yep. disability sector. Yep. That part of the sector is going to grow a lot coming down the track and, and, and it's exciting to see. It certainly is. So in serving on the advisory board of the Philanthropy Australia Council, mm. how then have you seen the philanthropic sector change and where do you see opportunities to achieve better philanthropy? Mm. Well, certainly it's changing uh, a lot. Uh, over the years uh, that I've been involved. Probably collaboration, as I've mentioned, I think yep. that's, that's becoming a big one. Impact investing is now a conversation that is happening widely throughout the philanthropic sector, saying, well, not only can we use our grant money, but we've all, we've all got a balance sheet of assets. That Can we use those assets to be more impactful to achieve greater social good? Mm. I think that's really, really important. Yep. I think finding... Um, ways to, I mean, Philanthropy Australia's purpose and mission in life is more and better philanthropy. So the more philanthropy is really looking at, I'm on the, uh, the policy committee there and having a look at what influence can we have in government from legislation point of view to free up more capital to come into the sector. Mm -hmm. um, in capitalisms, there's um, two driving influences. One is productivity and economic activity, which produces uh, uh, outcomes. But the other is the rules of the game that mm. uh, everybody has to abide by, which comes from government policy. Yeah. Now, as we know, much of uh, the work of philanthropy is taken up in cleaning, cleaning up the sandpit of poor policy decisions. So if we can get better policy outcomes that are going to be more positively influential mm. in getting better society, then that's certainly an important role. Yeah. Uh, so Philanthropy Australia is a great organisation. There's, there's a terrific board and uh, really are advancing the cause very strongly. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, certainly some really interesting insights there, particularly before you spoke about the philanthropy sector really starting to share and collaborate between them as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's great to hear. So to finish up then, Alan, could you please recommend a few great books to our listeners? Ah, right. Book time. I say a couple of books here that I enjoyed. One is uh, Thank You For Being Late, uh, Thomas Friedman. A uh, very interesting book looking at what uh, technology has played in recent times and the changes in society and also having a glimpse of what the future may be. Uh, very good book for entrepreneurs to have a read of to be able to 
to, uh, to expand their knowledge. From a personal point of view, um, Beyond Mindfulness by uh, Stephen, Stephen Bodium, Stephen Bodium, sorry. Um, and that really is having a look at your own inner work and development that you're doing. You can't be great on the outside unless you're great on the inside. So mm. you really got to look at how can you develop and grow your own spiritual strength, not attached to any religious context, but just really you're increasing your levels of awareness and perspective-taking abilities. Yeah. One of the key things in, in, in entrepreneurship is the ability to take perspectives, particularly when it comes to uh, raising capital, growing a social enterprise, is to sit so firmly in your funder's shoes and see the world as he sees it. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for all your stakeholders? If I was that stakeholder, yeah. what would I be seeing and what would I need? These are all perspective-taking skills. Yeah. And uh, success is directly related to your ability to handle as many perspectives as you possibly can and deeply understand what those needs are and craft solutions for them. Another book to look at is um, Bold by uh, Peter Diamandis. Diamandis, is that the right way to pronounce it? Um, So that's, once again, it's a big picture, think big uh, and grow. And that's part of the entrepreneur's journey, isn't it, to uh, think big dreams and, and and hunt them down. It certainly is. Well, I think there's a few really great books there, Alan. I'll stick them at the bottom of the article so people can click on through and have a further read. But Alan English, thank you very, very much for sharing your really generous insights and time today. We really very much appreciate it and we look forward to touching base again in the future. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.